much greater than I can conceive of, that he is so excellent in every way, that he has power to change us and transform, and, and he does these things by his grace. So we do serve such an awesome God, and great to fellowship and to sing together with you. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. If you'll turn there. Do you remember that feeling of the last day before school holidays? The feeling of like freedom and nothing could possibly go wrong because you're going to be freedom from, you're going to have freedom from school, but you're also going to have freedom to sleep in, freedom to go to friends' houses and go to the beach and have fun with family. And as great as that was, that euphoria was temporary, right? It didn't, it didn't last because... The thing about holidays is they come to an end, and you have to go back to school. You have to go back to work. The reality of time comes back, and it's good as believers to know that we will forever be subject to authority, God's authority. We'll always be under him, and, uh, and as people under authority, we have responsibility, Right? If you're under the authority of your boss, you have an accountability there. There's, there's certain duties and responsibilities you have. And before God, we also have those, those responsibilities. Even Australian government is under authority because it's a constitutional monarchy as well as a parliamentary democracy. And all of us who are citizens and subjects are required to vote like we did yesterday. And if we don't vote, well, someone's going to be talking to us about it and getting a fine or something. Um, anyone here ever been fined for that? Okay, we've got one rabble rouser in here. Never forget. Yes, it's a good, good advice. The Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines subject like this. It says, one that owes allegiance to a sovereign and is governed by his laws. Men in free governments are subjects as well as citizens. As citizens, they enjoy rights and franchises. As subjects, they are bound to obey the laws. God's created the world. He has put it under law, natural law. Government is an extension of his authority. As sinners, we naturally want our own way. We want to be independent. We want to be free. And there is within us, believe it or not, a grumbling resistance at times to authority. We, we resist it. We want our own way. And when we have authority, it's a challenge to wield it in a humble and godly manner. When we see people defy or oppose authority and we are being subject to it, it doesn't seem fair to us that we should be subjected to it while someone else is not. But today we're going to be reading about being subject to Christ. Uh, and, and the passage is going to be addressing a culture that was very different than ours, where there was slaves and masters. And, uh, but God and people have remained the same. We need him. We need to, to know him and be subject to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great God that you have all authority. And Jesus said that all authority and power has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And in his power, we go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey and to know you. And I pray that we would be those, Lord, who are filled with great joy to be subject to Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, and to have your love as a, as a defining mark in our lives through Jesus. 
I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for speaking to us through your word and for guiding us into truth in Jesus' name. Amen. The people that Paul was addressing in this letter, they were people young and old, married and couples, uh, or just single people, parents and children, masters and servants, uh, employers and workers, and everyone was subject to something. Even if the greatest of men and women, they were subject to hunger and thirst and fatigue and needing to sleep and rest and time, all subject to that. And since we are willingly under God's authority, it, it impacts our perspective of how we treat it and how we uh, respond to it. We see Jesus submitting himself to the Father, and we are called to be subject to him. The passage from last week, it ended in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. They were living in an evil day, and we too live in an evil day when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. They walk according to their own desires, but we're called to believe and to obey God. Picking up in verse 17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Those who are born again, they have a responsibility to know God's will and to put it into practice. Uh, God's will is not unknown or ambiguous. Sometimes we talk about God's will. It's like, well, whatever God's will, God's will be done. Not really knowing what that looks like or how it impacts us. But there's many places in the Bible where it's explicitly spelled out what God's will is for you in Christ. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. That gives us some insight into what God's will is for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. It says, I'm probably going too quick, right? We'll just give ourselves a second here. I have the benefit of uh, being able to take notes beforehand. So pardon my haste. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every person has a will, your own will. God has given that to you. You have a choice that you can follow your own ways or choose to follow God's ways. Jesus had his own will. Remember in, garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. So he voluntarily laid down his will to do the Father's will, even though it meant betrayal, arrests, beating, and crucifixion. So he said, not what I want, God, but what you want, Father in heaven. Not one of us is, in the flesh is able to do God's will. You read this passage and it says, rejoice always. Can you do that? In everything, give thanks. You're like, that's just so not natural for me. 
um, to pray without ceasing. How do you do that? How do you test all things? How do you hold fast to what is good? Now, verse 23, we know that God does this. God will sanctify us completely. He'll preserve our whole spirit, soul, and body at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And as he will be faithful to do that part, he'll be faithful to do the first part, but we have to cooperate with him. We do not naturally, I know this may be a shock, we do not naturally rejoice in all things. We do not naturally pray without ceasing or give thanks for everything. But having yielded to God and being filled with his spirit, he works this in us, where we begin to desire this and God accomplishes it. So praise the Lord that his will shall be done. Uh, back in our passage in Ephesians, he says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. That means excess, lewdness, unlawful indulgence of lust, but be filled with the Spirit. People under the influence of alcohol, they get a bit loose. They loosen up. Their inhibitions are relaxed a bit. And when alcohol takes over a person, they do and say things they normally wouldn't do which can lead to all manner of sin. Alcohol can dull and numb us. Now, the opposite is being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by God. To say that you're being controlled, doesn't that have a bad connotation? Like, oh, that he was controlling. We'd see that as a negative thing. But to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, when he is the leading, the guiding, the controlling in his gentle, gracious way without threats, manipulation, coercion, intimidation, blackmail, lies, or for selfish gain. That's a totally different way than how people exert control, right? He is gracious, he's compassionate, he's loving, and he wants what is best, what is good and pure. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's going to be evidence of His filling in our lives, even affecting the way that we feel. When you are drunk, there are certain characteristics that a police, when he's pulled, policeman or woman, when they pull you over and you have that breath test, they can look at you and say, "Um, hmm, I smell something coming off of you. Your eyes are bloodshot. When you walk along that line, Uh, you're unable to keep your balance, you have slurred speech. All these things are obvious signs of drunkenness, right? Well, being filled with the Holy Spirit is much the same. And we see here what those things are. We see in Acts chapter 4, after the disciples were threatened, they, they said, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They went back and prayed together. And it says the place where they were staying was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were bold in proclaiming the word. That was the evidence of the Holy Spirit within them. And in our text, it says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, some of you might say, well, singing's just not for me. It doesn't come natural for me. Well, thanking God for everything doesn't come natural for us either. But this is God's will for you, that you would have joy in your heart, even expressed with song to the Lord, that you would give thanks and submit to one another in the fear of God. Being filled with the Spirit 
submitting to God, that's really the key theme of this entire passage. Everything else follows on from that position. When we are submitting to the Lord and when we are keeping his word, there will be evidence in us. We cannot submit to one another we've submitted to God. I think I'm losing a mic here. You guys hearing that? It's cutting out a bit. It's all right. We'll get through this. We will just go until it dies completely. Isn't it easier to submit to somebody, to their authority, when you see them as your superior? But it's quite difficult when you see them as an equal or perhaps subpar. When I was an apprentice for four years, I found it much easier to submit to the directives of a master craftsman who's like, wow, that is the skill I want to possess someday. This guy knows how to do metalwork and knows how to do all these systems. But there were other people who outranked me who were complete hacks. And I did not respect their work. And I'm thinking, I'm a second-year apprentice, and I can do work twice as fast as you and put up this much more material that looks better in the end. And it was a challenge then to listen to them and do the things the way they said to do it, because I thought I knew better. So it was, it was a challenge for me. Warren Wiersbe, he said, anyone who has served in the armed forces know that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Jesus did not just submit to his father in heaven, but his mom and his stepdad. In Luke 2.51, it says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And it's phenomenal to think about Jesus, the son of God, the creator of all, the judge of all the earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, was bound to obey his parents because he was subject to them. He was their child. Just go, wow. And Jesus never made a mistake. He knew hearts. He knew thoughts. And he, ne he never did the wrong thing. And yet, his parents, they made mistakes. He knew what they were thinking. Yet he was subject to them. He was also subject to the law of Moses. He was subject to the recognized Roman authority. He placed himself below that because of who he was. And really because of who his father is. And that's for us to remember that it's because of who we have as a father and us being subject to him that we can be subject to one another in love, in the fear of God. Romans 13:1 it says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. The life of Daniel is a really solid example of this. Jerusalem was plundered People taken captive by proud King Nebuchadnezzar. He was brought into his courts as a student. He went to uni there in Babylon. And he was subject to the king, a king that had killed his countrymen and destroyed the temple and plundered it. And this is, this is hard to understand. He wasn't trying to undermine him. He wasn't leading a protest against him about this great uh, horror that had come to his people. But when the king brought food, under the law, that would defile him. And so he requested politely that he be allowed to eat only vegetables and not the meat that would defile him. And he found favor in the eyes of the, the man serving him. Daniel was under God's authority first, but he didn't undermine or fight against the king. 
Amazingly, God used his example and his testimony to bring Nebuchadnezzar to faith in God. I believe that his, his subjection to the king and his wisdom, like who among us is wise like this man in whom is the spirit of the living God? And he also trusted God. Ephesians 5, 21. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So also Christ is head of the church, and he is savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Following on from this exhortation to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to submit to one another in the fear of God generally, now Paul begins to address specific relationships, in particular the marriage relationship. Biblical submission in marriage is a far cry from that hideous caricature that's often portrayed of the domineering man and the silent, powerless wife who's slaving away. God's plan is a good plan, but men have corrupted it. We have gone astray. And because men have gone astray or women have gone astray does not mean that God's plan is flawed. We're the flawed ones. It says here that... uh, Wives are called to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, there's a couple of common errors in interpreting this passage. One of them is that it's a principle that women ought to submit to men. That's not true. It says in the marriage relationship, the wife is to submit, to be subject to her husband's authority as to the Lord. Another mistake is to think that the wife is to submit to the husband as if he is the Lord. That's not the case. Because that would be idolatry and sinful. What man is there that's equal to God? That we should reverence or obey like him? No man. Her willing subjection is service rendered to God in obedience to God. Knowing that he is the authority and he has established authority in the marriage relationship. Just like we're to forgive not based upon the performance of, or the forgiveness uh, or the person apologizing who has done us the wrong, but we're to do it as unto the Lord. As, the, as he has forgiven us, so we should forgive others. So it's not really having to do with the horizontal, but it's played out in that area. Uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary. In fact, it's, it's a very cool dictionary. They have it online. I would recommend you guys look up words occasionally in it. It is an American dictionary. However, of any non-biblical book, I believe it quotes the Bible the most of anything. And uh, so he defines submit in this way, to yield, resign, or surrender to the power, will, or authority of another, to refer, to leave, or commit to the discretion or judgment of another, to yield without murmuring. It's kind of like the vice captain and the captain on the pitch deciding how they're going to set the field. And the captain gets to determine exactly how that's going to finish. Like, all right, we need, we need a silly point, and we need to back up there and, and uh, get things arranged. The Webster's example was God's word to the pregnant slave Hagar, where Sarah was pretty bent that Hagar had been made pregnant, had fallen pregnant, and she hadn't for all that time. And so she treated her harshly. Hagar ran away. And in Genesis 16, 9, God said, return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hand. She didn't even want to be around Sarah, but God said, go back. I'm going to make of your son a great nation. 
There's a lot of examples that we could use to explain or try to say, well, authority and, and uh, being subject in a relationship is important, like the president and the vice president, um, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition. Uh, th- that's a little bit of a joke. Uh, a military model or sports. But the reality is none of these are great comparisons because none of them are founded on the love of God, a covenant between him and a person, and a lifelong spouse. There's really no no correlation at all between these different relationships. Politicians, they clamor for power and control, right? Once they have control, they want to keep control. Uh, Military rank, that can be a source of pride and always aiming to, to ascend, Showing that, you know, hey, I salute to you. You salute to me, I don't salute to you. Or the loyalty of sportsmen. That can change from year to year depending on which club is paying the bills, right? Those are not great examples of this model. The call is for all of us to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And in marriage, this is a call, in marriage, outside of a marriage, it's a call to faith and obedience to God. And if we wonder why it's important to submit, he goes on to tell us a couple of reasons beyond it's God's will. He says the first is the context of marriage, God made the husband the head of the wife, just like Jesus is head of the church. God created Adam first. And among all creation, there was nothing comparable to him. And so God took from Adam that rib and formed Eve, who became his bone and his flesh to compliment him as a spouse. And the second reason is the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. When we're born again, we're made members of the church of Christ, and that relationship is as a husband to a bride. Jesus is the head of the body. The movements of the hands and the feet, they're coordinated. And as the church is subject to Christ in everything, so the wife is subject to her husband. And, and I think even if husbands were totally perfect, even if we were all ideal in every way, this submission is completely impossible because Jesus is perfect and we don't always follow him. We don't always listen to him. So we need the Lord. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Yielding to the authority of Christ and to a husband can be done in obedience to God, knowing these things. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Husbands are called by God to agapeo, to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This love is active. It's not based upon performance. It's not given because you're pleased or withheld because expectations are not being met. It's to be done continually. Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Those who have a wife, you have received a gift from God, a precious gift. And it's a mark of grace a husband should treasure. Sometimes we receive a gift, and the gift may not be so glorious in itself, but it's who gave it to us that really makes the difference. Like, my grandpa gave me this knife, so it's a really special knife to me. I mean, you could probably buy a similar knife or a better knife for 100 bucks, but grandpa gave me this knife. 
So it's, it's going to be special. Now, a wife is a precious gift, not just because of who gave her to us, or that God has made her to complement us in a marriage relationship, but because of the value he places upon her. It's like God has joined us as one flesh. God chose to join you to that woman to be your wife. Husbands have this duty before God to ensure she is loved just like Jesus loves us, how he demonstrated his love sacrificially. The woman left her family to be joined to her husband, sometimes taking upon herself his name, and the husband ought to give himself to her continually. Jesus didn't view sinners like a ball and chain, which hold him back from the life that he'd prefer to be living. Jesus joyfully gave his life for us, and a husband should joyfully love his wife. Could you please turn to Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, as we see an example of the love that Jesus demonstrated for us in giving his life for the church. Gentlemen, we cannot measure up to this by trying our hardest. We should try our hardest, but know that without the Holy Spirit, we'll fall short. And he'll show us how we fall short. And may our love toward our spouse be faith and obedience to him. So Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself and became a nobody being thought to be the illegitimate son of a carpenter in Nazareth, he became a slave in the likeness of men. That's the position he took, a place of humility in obedience to the Father. He died on the cross for every wretch on this planet. He knew that was the end, and he rejoiced to do it. This mind is not naturally in us, but through Christ it can be. Jesus remained unmarried, sexually pure. In his prime, he laid down his life on Calvary so the church could be bought with his blood. He didn't do it out of duty or complaining or grumbling. He wanted us to be cleansed from sin and to live forever with him. It was our good. Now, our love, it tends to be an obligatory one. Like, well, I'm kind of obliged to, to do something kind for you because you've been doing something kind for me. Or you're the mother of my children, so I, I guess I ought to. You know, come on. We often love others because of the things they do for us, what they've given us, or who they are in relation to us, just on that basis alone. Jesus had no reason apart from his own goodness, grace, and compassion to love us, not because we're family, because, but because he wanted us to be. I mean, think about that. He loved us because of who we would become, and he loved us in our state as sinners. We weren't good looking, a great cook. We were not willing to yield. We're naturally proud, debased, filthy, full of blemishes, and selfish. 
When I married Laura, it wasn't because of who she would be someday. It's because I, I thought she was so lovely as she was. But Jesus, and you just think, it blows my mind that he would choose to unite himself to us as one forever, as our head, when I'm the equivalent of an adulterer. You, you think about, would someone marry someone if they cheated with everyone that they ever met, uh, cursed you to your face, and were told plainly many times that you were hated? Like, I hate you. Like, I love that person. I'm going to marry them. Huh? No way. You'd be like, I'm not going to take this abuse any longer. Why should I put myself out there for you? But that's us. And yet Jesus has loved us with that everlasting love. And in our sins, we were worse than this ridiculous character. Yet Jesus loves us anyhow. Christ submitting to God, loving us sacrificially, that's the example of how we ought to love our wives. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Men are called to love their wives as their own bodies. When you live in a body, you realize when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when you need to rest, when you want to play a game, when you want to read a book or watch TV or something, when you want to go out on a hike or uh, do an activity. We, we know, because you're living in that body, what you want and what you feel like. And we naturally want our desires and our needs met. The needs and the desires of your wife should be a priority in your life above your own. Paul pointed out the husband who loves his wife loves himself being of one flesh. The cliche, happy wife, happy life, it fits a bit, but it falls short of the ideal because happiness, it depends on what happens, and it's temporary. But love seeks the good of others rather than being focused at all on self. Verse 29 says, No one ever hated or per that's persecuted his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The word nourishes, it means to rear up into maturity, to cherish or train. I think from the time a boy becomes a man, there's a lot of meals that have been eaten. There's a lot of food that's been consumed. There's a lot of lessons that have been learned from that point of being boy to being a man to being a married man. There's a lot of investment that's taken place. Think about your parents investing in your education, investing in your life and providing for you. Well, that's the way that you ought to provide for your wife, to love her like that, to be thinking of her future, to think how she's doing. The word cherish, it means to warm, to brood. It's interesting. When you're camping outdoors and your hands feel cold. You light that fire and you warm them by the fire. And for us less robust men, we might slide some slippers on our feet, you know. Uh, my tootsies are a little chilly. Take the edge off. We, we're always seeking our own comfort according to our preferences. We want that warm drink on a cold day. We want that nice lounge. We want to be watching the thing we feel like watching. We want to do the thing we feel like doing. But we ought to nourish and cherish our wife that much, more than that. And what's so neat here is Paul uses that loving relationship of a husband to his wife to illustrate how Jesus nourishes and cherishes 
each member of the body of Christ. That's how, that's the example we are to follow. He sees us as members of his body, his flesh and his bones. Now, when you break a bone, do you know it? You may have that odd case where I knew a guy who, who broke his back playing football and, and uh, it took him three days to go to the hospital uh, because it just kept hurting. So he didn't know right away that he broke a, a vertebrae. But if you, if you snap your forearm, your body's talking to you. You'll, you'll know, right? Now, when you're hurting, he notices that. He notices that you're hurting. And just like you would administer first aid to a slice in your flesh, he'll come and minister. He'll nourish and cherish and, and watch over you. When we're feeling cold, he's quick to apply comfort and address our needs. On your doctor's advice, you may change your diet or the things that you eat. You may take supplements to strengthen those bones that no one else can see. God knows how you're doing on the inside, and he'll care for you in ways that others won't even know that you're hurting or struggling with. Husbands, do you see your wives as an extension of yourself, your own flesh, your own bones? Like, she's that dear to you. She's that close to you. She's like you, just an extension that God has made one. Do you make it a priority to talk with her and see how she's doing, how she's feeling in a compassionate way? Not loving her the way that you would like to be loved, but loving her the way that Jesus loves you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not seek its own. It keeps no record of wrongs. Far from just one hand washing another, love trusts and gives, demanding nothing in return. God's love is so awesome. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The bond of love between Christ and the church, that's a picture of marriage to emulate. And he quotes from uh, Genesis 2.24, it's a bit of a free translation, but emphasizing that bond between the married couple, it's greater than the bond between parent and child. If you're married, you're to regard your spouse as more your flesh and blood than your own parents. That's to be the focus, a, a primary focus. Uh, you aren't to stay together for the sake of the kids. You're to stay together because God's joined you together. He gave you to one another and he has joined. And if you're, as parents of married children, be careful you don't take an adversarial or contrary role to your child's spouse. Because whom God has joined together, you ought not to separate. There's been a change now in that relationship that that child of yours, that's now an adult, God has joined to someone else. And it's not for you to meddle with. It's for you to kind of, like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he must increase. Allow that to happen. Trusting God. I think it's just phenomenal that God would become one with the church, that he would unite us to himself like that. God, supreme, awesome, perfect. And he did that so where he is, we can be also. Not only are we one, but he wants to be with us. 
And it's so important in a marriage relationship that we want to be with one another, not just in a marriage bed, but together. We're going through this life loving and supporting one another. He's given us the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like an engagement ring, a seal, a solitaire to show that the church is his and we, he is ours. And then he returns to his point. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A husband loving his wife, it's not dependent on the amount of respect he feels he's getting. Uh, the wife's not to be subject to her husband based upon his good performance or if she agrees with his decisions all the time. And I like how Matthew Henry describes how wives, this word respect, it says, reverence consisting of love and esteem. That's to place a high value on somebody. And that's really how we ought to view the marriage relationship. And really all people, that there should be, as we're submitting to one another in the fear of God, knowing that God is supreme, God has authority, that we do this uh, in honoring him. A husband's to love his own wife, a wife to be subject to her own husband. We can know, since we're in Christ, that he will meet our every need. We, we can sometimes think that our needs are not being met in a relationship, and therefore we have to go outside the relationship to find those needs met. But if we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're connected to the body of believers, God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory through Jesus. The needs that we say are necessary, like food and drink and housing and, and money and sex, these things God is able to give us much more than this, things that will endure and last. And having been made one with Christ, we're really free to love one another. And so it's not... I need to love my wife more. It's I need to be filled with the Spirit because then he will enable me to submit to one another in love, to submit to the Father as Jesus did. Could you please turn to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It's a passage very similar to what we've read today. It's a little shorter, but it has a lot of the same uh, themes. And as we move on to chapter 6 of Ephesians, it follows on in this manner. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. When we love one another, when we're submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, it's by faith in God, and that's a way that we display our thankfulness for the love that he has shown us. 
You see all these different applications here of when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, what that looks like in our relationship with the kids and with our spouses and with uh, in even the work environment. That God's established authority in the heavens and, and in government and in church and in marriage, in the workplace. And no matter where you find yourself and what relationship status where you are, you can honor God in acknowledging his authority and obedience to him. And no longer are we to fear men. It's not to be done in the fear of man, like, oh, no, if they find out, or, oh, I don't want to displease him or her. It's to, it's to be actively done in service to the Lord. And when we're doing things as unto the Lord, we won't feel like we're being taken for granted because we are responding to his command, the thing that he's leading us. It doesn't matter who notices or cares. Have you ever served and sacrificed and you felt slighted because you are daily making sacrifices for your family or for your friends and nobody seems to notice? Nobody seems to care. And you get a bit bitter. It says, husbands, don't get bitter. I'm loving. It sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds like you're really loving. You've been passed over for a promotion. You've been working hard. Your husband's taking you for granted. Your wife ignores your decisions. Your parents are making unreasonable demands. Work is just out of control. And you're like, man, I got to start looking out for myself. If you catch yourself thinking, I have to do everything in this house. I have to do everything in this relationship. Guess what Jesus Christ is doing for you? Everything. He's doing everything for you. Man, I've thought that. But it was a foolish perspective because God, he loves me and he's filling me and he's helping me and he's comforting me. And if I'm feeling that way, it's because I'm looking around here to get some sort of acknowledgement or a pat on the back from men rather than rejoicing that God's filling me and using me to accomplish his purposes now. God has a reward of inheritance for you, as it says in that passage. It's far greater than recognition or appreciation. He gives you himself forever. He's given you himself. Will you trust him? Do you desire to be filled with the Spirit? He says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's in Luke chapter 11. Let's follow his example. Let's love. Let's submit to one another in the fear of God, knowing that we'll receive that inheritance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us with this everlasting love, for giving us an example. You just don't tell us what to do and make these demands, but you give us your spirit and you give us an example and you give us help and hope every day. I thank you for those among us, Lord, that uh, are also supplying that great example of a life submitted to Jesus Christ, loving one another, serving each other, not demanding recognition, not desiring attention. Lord, I thank you for the marriages in this room. I thank you for the, the different relationships in families, those who are single, those who are apart. We pray, Lord, that we would draw near to you. We'd be filled with your spirit, that we would uh, obey your word and would trust you 
our praises that we sing to you, our submission to one another in love and to you would be an act of faith and obedience, knowing that from you we receive the reward. Thank you, Lord, that the rewards of following you are so great and you are so patient and compassionate to us. Thank you, Lord. And may the, the words that we say be true in our hearts. Teach us how to love. Teach us how to live like you. In Jesus' name, amen.